Okay. Looks like the pins have slowed here at least, so let's go ahead and <laughs> his timing is impeccable, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> let's go over the squares here. Just in time to miss so give one reason why the rational proofs for the existence of God failed. A number of things you could say. What do you have down? Um, it doesn't prove what God has accomplished for redemption. Okay, it doesn't. Yeah, okay, it doesn't prove the correct God nor enough information about God. Okay. Sorry, but they reply, they rely on human thought or reasoning, which can be an error. We can believe in the wrong God. Okay. Yeah. Pretty much the same thing. Yes. Yeah. Say, I just had those things of another rational proof that unmoved mover, the first cause, doesn't tell specifically about who that God is. Okay. It doesn't identify the God. Yeah. We also said logically that. Uh, those those proofs don't actually. There's no there's no reason why you should stop with an unmoved mover or first cause. It points actually to endless regress. Uh, and uh, we also suggested that if you uh, put that much authority into the rational proofs, then the proofs themselves actually end up being a greater authority uh, than God Himself. So all of those come together, I think, to uh, give some reasons why that doesn't work. So what proof does the Bible give for the existence of God? This is my trick question here for Dave. I said, because he is. <laughs> okay, yeah, so it, is, it assumes the existence of God. Yeah, so, I mean, you could say something as as radical as it doesn't try to prove the existence of God. Uh or, as, as Dave suggests here, it assumes the existence of God. The, the idea here is that he, can, he is known through revelation, and we recognize him as such. And what's a good go-to text? Romans. Romans 1. Romans 1. So, everyone knows that God is. He's a powerful God. He's an eternal God. He's an ethical God. And yet they exchange the truth, this truth of this God for the lie. For the lie. They, uh, they suppress the truth of this God in unrighteousness. So that's probably your best one. You could have, if you had uh, Psalm 19, 1, well, pretty much the whole chapter, the whole psalm is, is also points that way. There's this sequence of the heavens are declaring, so everyone knows that God is, despite the fact that there aren't any words attached to it. And then it goes, there's this segue from verse 6 into verse 7 uh, to, uh, almost without a thought, the law of the Lord is perfect. I think the implication here is that you look around, you see God as revealed in nature, it should naturally cause you to turn then to Scripture and say, ah, he's spoken to me, and I, and I appreciate him, and I know him, I recognize his voice because I already knew him. Now, so, so one's the more positive. A, a, a regenerate person will make that 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 transition from the uh, the heavens to the word. Uh, but those who are unregenerate 
fall into Romans 1, they exchange and suppress the truth. Doesn't Romans 2, dealing with the law of nature, also... Yeah, so the law of God written upon the heart furthers that information about God being an ethical God with with expectations of us, yes. Yep. Two primary vehicles of general revelation of God. This is sort of a carryover from last semester. Okay, so the material creation and and the constitution or conscience of, of mankind. So either one is... Makes sense. Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> then we identified three vehicles of special revelation last week. Identify what one of those is and explain why it's a, a limited source of knowledge about God. One of them was the lives of Christians, right? Okay, lives of Christians. Mighty acts. They don't necessarily live up to their Christ-like. Right, so there's the limitation. Mighty acts is another. Yeah, it's confined to those who have witnessed it or have heard about it, essentially. Yeah, it's confined to that. And then even those who actually do hear it often misunderstand or misrepresent. I, I, I didn't really stress that point, but I have there in bold Amos 3.7, this statement that's made, because the, the, the question, there are these people who are false prophets, who are who are, you know, doing mighty, you know, these, these, these magic tricks, probably, more than anything, and so the question is, are these people from God? And the answer is, well, the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. Uh, which means, by implication, that uh, it, it obviously doesn't mean that God does nothing without that. But what I, in, in context here is God doesn't do these mighty, spectacular, miraculous things without an explanation from the mouth of the prophets, which, again, is, I think, another sort of a, a, a backdoor argument against... Uh, continuing miracles today uh, the the continuing miraculous gifts because uh, there are no prophets there are no legitimate prophets in in the church today and so therefore uh, the miracles can't occur because there's no one to explain them is the is the implication there there's one more that we we talked about what was that I wrote the scripture. scripture. We well, have scripture. We hadn't. That's the first one we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, so yeah. So that's in Jesus. And, and, yeah. So the scriptures in Jesus are still two left. Uh, the the other one we had was simply direct revelation, which perhaps you could just sort of merge with the mighty acts. It's when God actually speaks to people directly. And uh, again, the limitation is that He doesn't speak to everyone. In fact, today, I'd argue, He doesn't speak to anyone. And so the limitation is that. And then. You know, when God spoke, there was a lot of you know oral tradition that was warped and twisted along the way, which uh, reflects in some of the some of the world religions, uh, which have you know similar stories, you know common stories, but they're different. Why are they different? Well, because the 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 story that went uh, was 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 retold and and either embellished or changed and so some of this this data that legitimately started as revelation uh, got got distorted over time okay so good so that's our review I think we sort of uh, pretty much covered everything that we talked about last week in in brief 
So that brings us then, unless you have questions, um, brings us then to our our last two sources of special revelation about God, and uh, we mentioned them already, the Bible and Jesus Christ. The Bible uh, gives us abundant propositional testimony of the nature and character of God. In fact, it's described as thorough and giving us everything necessary for good works. The limitation is that it's because it is sufficient and thorough for every good work and and uh, to, to, to equip the man of God, it does not mean it gives us all information about God. There's, there's information of God left undisclosed. Some of it we'll pick up later. Some of it we won't. I mean, it, it, one of the key attributes of God that we'll get to here is his incomprehensibility. He cannot be fully known. Were he to be mastered or fully known... Uh, by any one of us, then the mystery would be gone. Uh, and God would no longer be God. Uh, the creature would have broken into the creator's realm and uh, God would would cease to be uh, spectacular. He would just be ordinary. And so uh, there's limitations on divine revelation that will always be there and the Bible uh, is evidence of that. It's also limited in some sense, to those who can read or at least hear, have access to the Bible, and to those who have the Bible carefully translated into their own language. So there are some limitations here, technical limitations here, but limitations nonetheless. Which leads us to the last one, and perhaps you think, well, okay, this is this is the greatest. In fact, that's what Hebrews says, right? You know, God revealed himself through the prophets in various forms and ways and parts and pieces. Now he's revealed himself through the Son, who is the express representation of God. Uh, the, uh, he is the exact representation of his being. Um, we've got similar statements in, in Colossians. In, in him the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. So if there is a if there is a climax to the revelation of God, it's in the person of Jesus Christ. He manifests God perfectly because he is fully God in visible form. Um, he's called, in fact, that's his name. That seems to be the point of his arrival, right? He's called Emmanuel, God with us. That's the that's the conclusion of of mankind uh, of the, of the history of mankind and. In Hebrew, in Revelation twenty-one three, now the tabernacle of God is with men. You know, He is tabernacling with us in person, and He will be our God, and we will be His people, and God Himself will be with us and be our God. And so that's the grand climax of history when we actually get to see God and rub shoulders with Him, interact with Him. Uh, so uh, God could not have revealed Himself more fully than this. No other medium of revelation has the capacity to actually be God. The other forms remain objectively and analogically explanatory. Now, it can't be claimed that one has seen the Grand Canyon, uh, seen the Grand Canyon, he has seen God, or that he has seen an exemplary Christian, he has seen God. I mean, that's just not true. I mean, when we see the Grand Canyon, we see some sort of 
manifestation of his creative skill and magnificence, but we don't see God. When we see the words of God, we hear we see an objective testimony to his nature and character. But this isn't God. This is this is these are words from God and about God, but they're not God. Just to say that goes too far. Uh, so so we can't we can't look at these these uh, things and say we've seen God. But when we look at Jesus Christ, we've seen God. We've seen God. And so for this reason, he's superior. So unlike the other vehicles of self-revelation, God is personal, fulfilling man's real need. Job nine. You know this is this is his. Uh, remember he's being badgered by his friends, so-called here, uh, for being a bad guy, and that's why things are happening. Bad things are happening to him, and he's like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm not I'm not perfect, but I don't get it. You know, I I can't think of anything that I've done that's really. Uh, caused God to turn against me like this. I, I, I just don't buy this this idea that I'm just a bad person. In fact, he says I could I could enter into a courtroom with God and you know make my case and I could win the court case. I mean, it gets a little bit arrogant, a little bit edgy, tense when he's when he's when he's talking to his friends. And he makes this statement, I, but I can't do that. Why? Because God is not a man like me. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us to lay his hand upon us both. And so he's he's saying, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm being beat up here by God, and and I don't really have any recourse to defend myself. And so, and and then he makes this statement: I wish there was an arbitrator, someone who is both God and man, who could lay his hand on both of us and see both. And understand both of our worlds, and be able to uh, to mediate for me. I mean, it's a remarkable statement here because we're all familiar with was it first first uh, is it first Timothy two fifteen. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So uh, Job is actually appealing for something that's not available to him, but actually does become available. Uh, Christ does become our mediator, and that's an advantage. That's a that's a that's a great thing. Isaiah sixty four one. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Uh, there's I mean, it would solve so many problems <laughs> if God would simply rend the heavens and come down. But he's uh, he's up there and I'm down here, and, and there's that 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 barrier right now. And then we talk about Revelation twenty one three that God will eventually come back down and make his home with us. We can rub shoulders with him. It's the most perfect and complete vehicle of divine self-revelation. He's not occluded by sin. Not like we are. We represent God, but we represent represent God poorly as image bearers, firstly, and then even as Christians. Christ doesn't have that problem. He has the greatest potential to serve as a growing aggregate of divine revelation. God will always be incomprehensible even after he has revealed himself in Jesus. Even in eternity will not fully disclose all there is to know about God. However, believers will know more about God when they see Christ. That's the point in 1 Corinthians 13, right? You know, now we see as in a glass darkly. We we see something of a, a dim picture of who God is, a 
an occluded picture because uh, it's a reflection and probably a poor reflection view the mirrors of their day. Uh, but then we'll see him face to face. There will be uh, that, that uh, occlusion will be taken away because he'll be right there. So we'll know more about God when we see Christ. We'll know everything about God, but we'll know more when we see Christ. And from that point forward, he will be the source of additional information about God that we receive as we uh, continue our way through the eternal state. But there are still limitations. And the first one's kind of obvious to us. He cannot be materially known today. He's not available to talk to. He's in person, not in a material form. Uh, all we, the only way we can meet him, as it were, is in the Bible. You know, we we go to the Bible and we and we we learn. This is the authorized record about God, uh, but we don't actually see God. This is this is as close as we can get. Person and mission of Christ have been grossly distorted by some. So Christ is gone, and people have come along, and and you know terribly rested what he has done so that scarcely identifiable what his what his what his mission was when he came to earth and you can find these in many so-called christian religions and of course the non-christian religions have a you know have a have a you know intentionality to it ultimately however the only limitation in eternity then will be the finiteness of the human mind so we conclude that while Christ is the highest form, most complete form, the best form of revelation, the Bible reigns today as the greatest form of divine self-disclosure because, number one, the Bible is the greatest accessible form of divine self-disclosure. Christ is not accessible. Secondly, the Bible provides the only authoritative accounting and commentary on the other sources of revelation. So, there's other sources of revelation, the, the uh, Christians, people in the image of God. Uh, we've got uh, uh, the, the, the miracles and mighty acts of, of history, and, and all of these things come together. But we don't really know, we, can, we really can't have them authorized to us or have a certain interpretation of those events when we open up our scriptures and discover it there. Isn't uh, that what Second Peter talks about? Like, talks about transfiguration. Then says that we have a more sure word of prophecy. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's that's sort of the idea there. That uh, you know, when he's 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 seen the transfigured Christ, and it was a spectacular event. And until God came along and explained to him, he got it wrong. Right? Mm-hmm. Let's build a tent. He doesn't. He doesn't get the point. This is this is this is my son. Listen to him. Uh, so he said, wow, this is really, this is really cool. Let's build tents for these three people here. So he misses it, firstly. So even the great apostle uh, misses the meaning of that. And then he recognizes that, yeah, Peter, James, and John got to see that, but nobody else did. And so we only have the story. Uh, so we have, the, we have the Bible, and that's for us more certain than uh, than... You know the the, the tes- testimony of a, of a human. We have the inscripturated and uh, inspired words of God. And then we said, say finally here, the Bible gives the only authentic disclosure of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, in fact, it seems that Christ is concerned about accounts other than the Bible being perpetuated. It is remarkable that as the splashes Jesus must have made those several years he was walking around in the countryside, there's very few historical accounts of this other than the four Gospels. There's some that mostly written way, 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 way after the fact. Uh, but as far as eyewitness testimony, there just there just aren't any. In fact, he seems at point several points. I've got uh, the number of texts I have written down in my margin here, where he tells the disciples, "Don't tell anybody about. It. Don't 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 repeat this. Don't 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 tell anybody this happened." And and you're like, why? I mean, we actually find out later. Well, he he doesn't want too much information, sort of just getting out there and living a life of its own. Okay. Uh, and you know, and then when it comes to the end of the Bible, he says, "Don't write any more." Uh, he sort of stands on his head at the end of Revelation and says, "This is it. There's no, there's no more to add here. Anybody who adds to this is in big trouble." And everybody takes away too, but but anyone who adds their own little twist on the story is going to is going to face severe judgment in the last day. So. He seems to really want to clamp down on alternative accounts of his of his life and ministry. He gave us four, and these are the four we get. We don't get others. So it's because there's really only one authentic disclosure of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that's the Bible. Okay. Thoughts there? One thought, kind of finiteness of the human mind in eternity our minds are still going to be finite yes but are we going to be leveled off somewhere is it someone who doesn't have the capacity in this world I don't know that we will I mean I'm I'm only speculating here we're not all we're not going to be all even in every area certainly some of us will get greater rewards than others some of us will have you know authority over more cities than somebody else right uh, so it's not as though we don't just sort of get leveled out in that sense. But someone I mean, that doesn't have, you know, they're, they got the mind of a ten-year-old now. Yeah, I think in their glorified body. They, yeah, it may be dispersed differently, so that the people who were obedient and faithful in this life have a greater capacity for knowing and loving God uh, than those who who didn't. But I don't know that I, I don't know that there's any reason to think that we're all going to be. You know, have perfect minds in heaven. I think we're you're we're, talking about a physical limitation, right? Yeah, but we're going to have a glorified body that's going to have some physical limitations in heaven as well. Well, we're, yeah, I mean, there's 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 the general limitations of physicality. We won't be in two places at once and, and, and such. But um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's that's a good question. I don't, I'm, I'm it's not going to be. It's going to be a glorified body. It's not going to be one that's that, uh, suffering the effects of sin. And a glorified mind in that yeah. sense. So I, I think if somebody's, you know, he's you know, mentally handicapped in this life, I don't think he's mentally handicapped in eternity. At the same time, I'm not sure I'd, I'm seeing any reason why everybody has to be even in terms of mental acuity in heaven. 
I can ask all kinds of weird questions. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that would be the result of a fall too, right? That somebody maybe in that in that state. Well, not. I wouldn't think in eternity the, the effects of the fall are reversed. Right. Right, but yeah, I mean, but we have that now because of that, right? Though, right. right. So sure. all things being, you know, back to the Garden of Eden, right? right. But when we get to heaven, we should, you know, our, our, you know, our, our, what is what is damaged should be restored. At the same time, I don't know that that just means that everybody has, yeah. I guess what I was sort of like wondering is if we're going to learn more about God. Is are all of us going to have the same ability to acquire that information? That's a good question. I, my inclination is to say that that's part of the reward. Yeah, the reward is never really defined. And what what are the rewards we're going to get in heaven? I mean, they're they're just these 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 crowns are listed, but it's probably not physical crowns. I mean, I used to have this picture in my head of you know stacks of crowns, in my head, but but it's it's probably the wrong picture. I mean, these are. You're crowned with something, and we're not sure what exactly we're crowned with. So, like Apostle Paul's already got a head start. <laughs> yeah, but it seemed that there's that we're not equal, we're not even, and so what's going to what's going to distinguish us in heaven? Is it just is it going to be material wealth? It doesn't seem like that's going to be all that important to us. Is it going to have the authority within God's order, possibly? A greater capacity to know and love him, maybe. So that's that's why I'm including that there. Uh, so we're not going to be even in every sense. Well, you know, when you think about how the whole church is related to a body, and everybody, one of the big joys of the church, to me anyway, is that the interdependence. That I'm not completely independent. I get great joy out of. Depending on others, and uh, I wonder if that concept will continue in heaven. Good things. Well, we have infinite amount of time to um, fellowship with an infinite God, and maybe because some people during their life started out in or ended up in a different place. And entered at a different time. Maybe that all account for definitely. You said head start. <laughs> I don't think anybody's. I don't think anybody's going to be complaining. Complaining, right? But mm-hmm. but we're not all going to be equal. Okay, I've got a short section on the uh, names of God. Some people make a really big deal about the names of God. Um, you know, they'll, they'll have you know grip. I've seen devotional books written on the names of God. And there's probably some sense in which the names of God are more important than our names because of the, uh, because of the uh, nature, nature of naming, firstly, in Hebrew, but also because he's named based on what people know of his character. When we're named, you know, when we're named as children, nobody knows anything about what we're going to be like. It's just a, it's just a name we like or... Or you know, who knows why people choose the names? I'm clueless sometimes. But uh, but uh, but when names are chosen for God, they are a reflection then of His character and His nature. So the so there is something to be said about the names of God. Sometimes I think it's overblown, but still there's something something to be learned here. Okay, <coughs> there's 
two major, uh, well, three major uh, Hebrew names for God in the uh, in the Old Testament. Elohim, used twenty five hundred and seventy times. It is the generic name for God, if I can put it that way. It's a name that will be used for other gods. So if we're talking about false gods or uh, idols, they will be called as the gods of the nations. This will be the name that's used. So this word is used not only of God, uh, but also of other gods. It's a, it's a, it's a, I can say it's a, a species. Uh, there's really any legitimate spe- le- legitimate m- members of this species other than the true and living God, but it's used generically. Um, incidentally, it's it's the if you if you look at Arabic, it's it's the s- same word that we get the word Allah out of. You know, so El uh, pluralized is Elohim. Uh, Allah is the, is basically the same name. So there's there's oftentimes a lot of debate as to whether you know, we should call the true and living God Allah. You know, in trans Bible translation, it's a big, it's a big kerfuffle uh, that's that's out there in the in the translating world. And many argue that the, that's the generic name for any anyone who claims to be God. And so, it is a legitimate thing to translate, uh, you know, Allah as God in in uh, in Arabic translation, but. There's a lot of debate about that because it can be confusing. Didn't okay. Wycliffe get a big trouble about that or something? Was that? Didn't Wycliffe translators get it? To, yeah, there's uh, yeah there's there's been a few different yeah different uh, debates and and uh, uprisings over, over over that because of that nature. We we need it. We need a generic name for God that can accommodate other claimants. To godness, right? We talk about the Greek gods. Well, they're not really god. We know that they're fake, or they, we know they don't exist. Nonetheless, we have to have some sort of a name, a categorical name here to use, and that's what this word is. El or El Elohim um, is is the generic name for God. So, in a, in a sense, Allah is an El. You know, it's the same 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 thing. So, um, uh, so hence, hence the debate. Um, it didn't, in, uh, in Greek, is there like a distinction between like Elohim and Yahweh? Like how did not re- well? Okay, yeah. In fact, I didn't really say much about the New Testament, but uh, you've got Theos, which is God, um, but then it would be used of other gods, and then you have Lord Kurios. Which is which is normally translated, you know, translated in the, uh, you know, you often will see it in uh, in uh, the, uh, the Christos, you know, Christos and and Lord Adonai, uh, which is translated here, Lord. Um, it, but it doesn't have the same same sense as as God and Lord in the Old Testament. So the Septuagint, how do they differentiate these names? Yeah, we'll come to that because that, that's it's going to be interesting when we come to Yahweh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Elohim would be translated Theos. Uh, Yahweh, you know, that's a good question. How is that translated? I need Bill here for this one here. How is that translated in uh, 
in uh, uh, in, in Greek. I'm guessing kurios, but I don't know that. I don't know that. Um, sometimes it was untranslated. That that's that's going to be one of the things we come up with this with this. We'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to Yahweh. So let me put you on hold, and we'll get there. Uh, but first, let's look at what Elohim is. It, it denotes the fact that God is the creator and the sustainer. So when we see that God is the creator, God is used. Okay, He's the one who puts forth his power and strength. It's also used of false gods, even of men. Men can be, uh, the statement, you are gods. Okay, uh, that, that is, we have features and characteristics of God that sort of distinguish us from lesser beings that God has created. So, uh, so this is, it, it's even used, it's used of angels as well, the sons of God. Uh, so, so, um, Elohim is a more general term. It's translated God in most translations. It would have been translated Theos in the Septuagint. The next word, Yahweh, if I can say that, so, so if, if Elohim is, is a general word for the species of those who claim to be God, which is broader than God, but uh, uh, but uh, nonetheless, it's a it's a, it's a, a categorical name. Yahweh is the personal name of God. Okay, when you see this in Scripture, it means nothing other than the true and living God. This is this is Yahweh, sometimes translated Jehovah in English. It is translated uh, with all caps in most translations, not all translations, but most translations uh, translate this in the Old Testament in all caps, so a, a large L and then O-R-D within, with small caps. Uh, so, uh, so all caps. And that distinguishes it from the next word, and I'll explain why. The, 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 the name Yahweh denotes again the self-existence of God. It's actually a form of the Hebrew word to be, which is Hayah. Okay. Uh, so it's so if we can give a rough translation of it, it is the being one, the one who is, the self-existent God. Uh, perhaps we've got something here uh, where Moses asks, Who shall I whom shall I say sent me? I am that I am. Okay, so this is this is an explanation, perhaps, of his own name. He is the one who is. He's the God who is. Um, it's sometimes translated Jehovah in English, but probably is more correctly rendered Yahweh. So how does that happen? I just wrote this up here. I don't have a marker board here, so I put this up here. These are the these are the four letters of what's sometimes called the tetragrammaton, Yahweh. So, uh, Y-H-V-H. Okay? Uh, of course, it goes backwards in, in Hebrew. So, I reverse it here. So, it's Y-H-V-W-H. Y and J are the same. And there are no J's in almost any language other than English. Um, you, you have you have a... It's something like a Y that sort of morphs into a J. So, so it's either a Y or a J, and the W and the V are are interchangeable as well. So depending on who taught you Greek, that is pronounced the or w, or perhaps a little bit of both, depending on on, on who you have. So so how do we know how to pronounce it? Well, uh, normally in in uh, in uh, in modern well, I say 
let's let's just say medieval Hebrew, uh, they invented this uh, a system of vowel points. Uh, Hebrew doesn't come to us ordinarily with vowels. It's just consonants. Uh, but the people who know the language know where the consonants are supposed to be. And so they, they can read that without without the consonants. But those, those dummies uh, don't know how. And so what they invented, I think about the ninth century A.D., they invented this uh, system of vowel pointing so you could... So you could know how to pronounce it. But the problem is nobody knew how to tr- pronounce this word uh, because it uh, the, it was it was a tradition that they wouldn't pronounce it unless they take the name of Yahweh in vain. They didn't say it at all. Uh, that was their solution. Okay, if, if, lest we take it in vain and break one of the Ten Commandments, we won't use the name and we'll and we'll get around this problem. And so what they would do is supply another word. Okay, and it's the lesser word that's coming up in point C, and that is Adonai. Okay, and so they would say Adonai, which is a lesser word for it's still translated Lord, but in all in small letters, it's it's a, it's a, it's a word that we might use for Lord or Master or Ruler. Okay, so you know uh, again, it's a it's a more generic uh, uh, term for some sovereign over me, whether human or divine. Uh, some lord or master, whether it be a slave master or my taskmaster at work, it's someone who has the rule over me. Uh, and so it's a general term that would be used not only of God then, but also of of any human master. And so they would use this lesser word. And so what ends up happening is, is in English, uh, they said, okay, they, they use the word Adonai, and here are the letters, let's, let's throw those verbs in, those, those vowels in there. And so they, so they, so they said, Yahowah, so Jehovah, okay. Uh, but actually, that's the wrong way to go about it. I mean, that was the wrong word. And so the vowels in Adonai have nothing to do with the vowels in Yahweh. And so it's really, it really comes down to the uh, the Hebrew scholars have come along and said, you know, that word Yahweh is almost certainly an infinitive form. Of the Hebrew word to be, and if and and we know based on how words are, you know, verbs are pointed, other verbs are pointed, that this almost certainly should be Yahweh, and so the correct pronunciation is almost certainly Yahweh, not Jehovah, uh, but that uh, that older English understanding Jehovah is still sometimes out there, Jehovah's Witnesses, and and so on and so forth. Okay, does that make sense? That's a little bit. Of trivia for you, but but Yahweh is the is the personal name of God. It's commonly associated here with his covenant keeping and redeemer relationships with Israel, <coughs> and it's exclusive to the one and true one true and living God. So then, the the last word, this this Adonai, this common word here, denotes the master owner idea of God. He's owner and sovereign of the of the universe and of every member of the human race, and it's translated Lord with just ordinary or, uh, ordinary letters, Arabic letters, uh, sometimes translated Master. Uh, but the label is used widely in a non-divine sense for people who are masters of brother. There's a lot of combinations of these words as well uh, to stress some of the features and characteristics of God. Yeah. Mark, uh, what about uh, Abba Father? Abba, yeah, it's 
Uh, from what from what I understand, Bill would be a better person to ask that. That it's it's simply a a, a more uh, familiar name for a father that you might use in the home, perhaps like dad. Um, I, and so it's 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 the idea of uh, of a of a calling upon God in such a sense with the familiarity of a child to a father, perhaps. Uh, it's a, it's a great word. Yeah, it demonstrates relationship, which is, seems a little bit different than right. master, owner. Right. Yeah, I only I only put in the Hebrew ones Okay, I'm oh, sorry. But, but sorry. yeah, I, I could have put in the yeah, New just, Testament ones okay. as well, but yeah. Yeah, there are other names for God that are used, but these are the, Big the, ones, the right? bigs. Yeah, okay. There's combinations, Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide, Rapha, he heals, Nisi, he's our banner, and so on and so forth. I, well, these won't be on your quiz, just so you know. <laughs> but uh, so, so some of these are, I want to, and then there's combinations of Elohim either, uh, as well. El, Elohim, of course, is plural. El is singular. Uh, so El Elyon, the most high God. Uh, El Alam, the God of the Ages, the everlasting God, and then El Shaddai, which everybody knows because of the song, is the Almighty God. So, uh, the Lord of Hosts, sometimes. So he's a he's a powerful God. So these are all combinations of the name of God that tell us something about His nature and character. But uh, at least we reviewed some of the big ones that you see in the scriptures. Okay. Thoughts on that? Okay, now we're going to get into one of our bigger sections of our study here. We basically have two big sections coming up. One on the personality of God, the functions of personality, and then the next section will be the attributes of God, which I do distinguish. Uh, and then it, it, that, that takes us all the way up to page 46, I think, 47. So that, that takes us a long way into that, and then there's some uh, some things we'll, we'll sort of clean up the, the, the rest of the class with. But uh, we have these two sections. So what's the difference here? Well, what I have here in terms of personality is a cluster of functions. Okay, these are not the attributes which define what God is or who He is. These are functions or capacities that render a person a truly spiritual being. Uh, I think these are, it's, these are, it's very important to look at these to understand then, uh, what it means to be in the image of God. Because, because we carry all of these functions, uh, that God has imperfectly, uh, but we have all of these functions. So it's, it's going to be a, a big distinction I make here between the, uh, between uh, the, the functions of God which make up the divine image and then the attributes or perfections of God which are inaccessible to man. We don't, we don't share his attributes. But we do share all of these functions. And that's, that is what makes us part of the image of God. Okay? Uh, so, um, there's some debate as to what functions should be added to this list. I've got nine on my list. Some reduce it to two or three. Self-consciousness and self-determination. 
Uh, some have three, uh, mind, will, and emotions, thinking, willing, and feeling. But there do seem to be more than these, and so I have here nine. This is pretty much... Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I guess I have, I have eight, right? Yeah, I've got eight. Uh, there, uh, Dr. McLean and McCune had seven, uh, but I added a last one because I think it's important to add it. So the, the last one here, moral agency, is one I've, I've, I've thrown onto the list. But uh, in some sense, there's a, there's a little bit of arbitrariness here. Uh, there could be more things we could add to it, but these seem to be uh, the, uh, the critical ones here. Okay? So, and, and we're, of course, we're, what we're doing here is not just trying to find out what makes us persons, but actually, we're trying to stress the fact that this is this is, this is our connection point with God, because this is because God is a person as well. It's three persons, right? Uh, but uh, but He is a person. We are persons. This is this is this is this is where we actually have our. I don't want to call it common ground, but we have we ha- we we can understand Him, and He can display Himself to us in that we have these common features uh, that make us the divine image. Okay. So let's let's start looking at these. And some of them are straightforward. Others perhaps are a little you, you might be a little surprised with what we have here. The first of these is that God is spirit. He is a spiritual being, but he is actual actually spirit. So not one of a spirit not not one of a species here. Uh, but he is pure spirit here, uh, so it's the quality of him as spirit. What does this mean? Well, by spirituality, it m- is meant that all persons, anyone who fits into the category of person, has an indestructible, enduring identity apart from a physical body. So you have a body, but you have an enduring existence that survives the loss of your body. Uh, angels are also persons in that they have an enduring existence despite the fact that they have no body. God has no body, per se, except when he actually adds one for condescension purposes here. Um, nonetheless, he remains a person. He has an enduring identity apart from a human body, uh, from a body, which then would exclude here non-sentient life forms. So, your cat or your dog, much as they seem to have a personality of, of sorts. They're not spiritual beings. When they die, they're done. You know, it's, you know, you're not going to find a dog. Your dogs don't make it to heaven. Certainly cats don't. Uh, but, but, uh, <clears throat> so that's, 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 again, you had to break that to us. I'm sorry? I said you had to break that to us. Caster <laughs> so. Ken's going to watch them if, if they are there. That's I missed that one. That was an oh, inside joke. He's not, a, he's, not a, he's not a dog guy. He's not a dog lover. Okay. <clears throat> so, so by definition, then, spirit is the fact that you have an indestructible, enduring identity apart from a physical body. It doesn't mean you can't possess a body or that persons with bodies are in some way deficient. That's uh, Platonism that say if you have a body, you're deficient. You want to escape the prison house of the body. doesn't mean you're deficient because you have a body. But what it does mean is that whether or not you have a body, you have a spiritual existence that is that that survives you. Spirit, then, is the invisible metaphysical source of personality. 
Um, it's not sourced in the physical brain. Uh, I, I know we tend to think of our brain and our mind as somehow synonymous, that our spirits reside, you know, in our heads uh, rather than, you know, in our stomachs or something like that. Uh, but it, that's that's probably because of that's probably where the greatest symbiosis is seen in, in the brain and the mind and the personality. But the brain isn't the personality. I mean, when you die, your brain's going to be, you know, part of what's sitting there on the slab, and it's just going to be inert, right? It's it's nothing. It's just a it's just a physical substance there. Your your mind, your personality is the source of. Uh, is, is you know, your mind is your your spirit is the source of your personality. Uh, so God's nature, Romans one, we saw already, is composed of invisible attributes, His eternal power and Godhead, uh, so that they are without excuse. Right. So so He's got invisible attributes, and the source of His personality cannot be seen. That's the source. Some some some. Some yeah, we we want to put some substance to it, but there isn't any physical substance. But that's where the source of personality is. Christ is the image of the invisible God. So oftentimes we we connect spirituality with invisibility. It's probably not exactly accurate, but the fact is that when God is invisible, He's still God. When we're invisible. When we when we lose our bodies at the you know at death, we're still there. Uh, apparently, we're localized, just like angels are. I'm not sure exactly how that works, uh, because you, you would think that we wouldn't take up space. Nonetheless, remember there are the angels that uh, were with, with Daniel. Uh, Michael says to him, "I was delayed for three weeks from getting to you." So he's not everywhere. And he has to go from point A to point B, and so maybe he can go really fast, but but it's not as though he's everywhere at once. And so there's so our spirits are localized. God's spirit apparently is not. He's got a he's got a he's got an infinite spirit. He is an infinite spirit, uh, which is unbounded by space and time. Okay, so Christ is the image of the ordinarily invisible God. First uh, Timothy one. Through the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. So, uh, so God cannot. God is a pure spirit. Second commandment, which prohibits graven images, is a tribute to God's spirituality. He is not to be worshipped materially, but spiritually. So you don't have an object in front of you when you worship God, because that object in front of you demeans God. There is no object that can adequately convey or express who and what God is. It's a it, it's an it's an insult to God for there to be an image representing him. The only image that he allows is Jesus Christ. He's the only image of the invisible God that God will permit. No, none other will. None no, other will cross. Well, it's a I mean, symbol. It's a symbol, but hopefully you're not worshiping no. the cross. I know some of the songs. I'll cling to the old rugged cross. It almost sounds that way, but uh, I mean, it, I mean that's a big, a big debate in in, uh, in church history. The iconoclastic controversy. The question that whether you can actually use icons to help you 
in your worship. And the, of course, the Eastern Church has a, you go to an Eastern, Eastern Orthodox Church, there's images everywhere. Uh, because the idea is these will help us in our worship. Where the Western Church, while they still have multiplied some images, you'll, you'll find a great, great, great deal less. Uh, because they understood that this command prohibited aids to, to worship. In some sense, the, uh, the debate is a little bit off because there is a sense in which we can use objects in our worship so long as we don't worship the objects. So is it, is it inappropriate to have a cross in the front of the church? Sort of reminds us of what's done and, and aids in our worship. I, I think that's fine, uh, but it's it's but the, but I, but I, that, that commandment there, the second commandment, still always looms, and which is why Protestants, for the most part, have certainly truncated or limited the number of icons that they'll allow in in the church for that reason. They don't want to underrepresent God or misrepresent God through icons. And there just is something inside of people that, yeah, that they 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 start to worship the object. It, I, I'm not sure what it is, um, but uh, you, you see that sometimes with uh, with a Roman Catholic, for instance. There's a there's there's almost a worship of the of the object, so, so tangible. Yeah, and that's, that's that seems to be what the second commandment is concerned with. You can't have some object replace God. I know some. Friends of mine that are Protestants say they won't. Uh, they won't even have a picture of Jesus. Right. Yeah, that, that that seemed to be. A, I remember when I was a kid, that was very important to my parents too. You don't you don't have a picture of Jesus because you know, Jesus is Jesus. We don't know what he looked like, and if we put a picture of Jesus on the wall, we might end up worshiping him. And so we didn't. You know, we didn't have. We you know, we did have a. One of those paint by number um, uh, last suppers my, my mom did, but that's the only one we had. <coughs> I remember having the discussion though. <clears throat> I was a little kid. So he's to be worshipped spiritually. We are to worship him in spirit and in truth. John four twenty four says, "God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in a spiritual way." Uh, so we, we tend to focus on when we read that on the truth part. We worship him within the within the bounds of inscripturated revelation. You have to uh, worship him in truth. You can't misrepresent him. But probably here, um, we, when it says here we are to worship him in spirit, it's not just saying that we worship him invisibly, but also says something about Engaging the whole of the person, uh, our spirits are to be involved in the worship, so that if we're in the services, just you know, mouthing out the word without thinking about them and engaging the mind, uh, then we're not worshiping adequately. Okay, so we're to worship him with the whole of our spirits as well. So I think that's reflected here. Our invis- we're supposed to be invisibly, invisibly engaged. In in worship when when we worship not just not visibly not just visibly engaged. It's a morning to us, I think. 
So God alone then is pure spirit. So again, I think it's without the without the uh, without the article, God is he's not a spirit or the spirit. He is spirit. Uh, so he's the exemplary, unsourced, perfectly self-consistent spirit from which all lesser spirits are derived, which is reflected here in Hebrews 12.9 as being the father of spirits. So God is spirit, and all lesser spirits derive from the creative work of God. So we're spirits, but not in the same sense God is spirit. God is the absolutely pure, perfect initial, original spirit. So what can a spirit do? Well, Mark 2, Jesus perceived in his spirit the reasoning of his critics. So uh, so here's a, here's a spirit who's able to think, he's able to perceive, he's able to purpose. Paul purposed in his spirit to go to Jerusalem. Uh, a spirit can rejoice. Mary's spirit rejoiced in God, her Savior, and can also worship, as we've already talked about. We commonly think of these things as functions of the brain. Perception, purpose, emotion. And in humans, there is clearly a symbiosis there. However, these functions are attributed to spirit. Further, it is self-evident that spirits can see and hear and otherwise sense apart from sensory organs. Now that I don't know if I can explain to you. But God sees, even though he has no eyes. God hears, even though he has no ears. Now sometimes we use these anthropomorphisms and attribute to God eyes and ears. But we recognize he doesn't really have them. Nonetheless, he can perform the functions of eyes and ears, even though he has none. Because in his spirit, he can see and hear. Uh, and I, I'm inclined to say then that, well, we know angels can do the same. I'm inclined to say there that when we have a spiritual form, when we die, we don't receive our resurrection body immediately. We're going to be able to see and hear and know things, even though we don't actually have the sensory organs or the brain. So, so, uh, so this is what spirits can do. Like I say, sometimes God just condescends to make himself known by ascribing to himself these bodily parts. Uh, this is called an anthropomorphism. You can say anthropos, which is man, and morph, which is a form. So, so it's a form of man. Uh, so it's it's used to accommodate our, our finite minds, but we shouldn't understand these to be literal body parts. Okay. Leads to a question here sometimes comes up here how can God be seen if he's invisible and then secondly how can he be seen if the scriptures say that anyone who sees him is under threat of death you know, it seems to be a, a, an understanding uh, Sam, Samson's parents remember uh, they're talking to this person they think is another person then they realize he's something bigger better than than a person they think he's an angel and then they realize that this is god they're speaking to and they're they think they're they're doomed isaiah remember and isaiah 6 thinks he's doomed right you know uh, uh woe is me for i am ruined because i'm a man of unclean lips well among the people of unclean lips because mine eyes have seen the king Okay, so, so he understands that uh, seeing 
this manifestation of God uh, is something that uh, could doom him. Okay, so we have this this understanding out there that those who see God uh, will die. Moses, when he's hidden in the cleft of the rock, he asks if he can see see God, and God says, "No, you can't. You can't see me, but I'll." I'll let you see my hinder parts. You know, I'll let you see my back. Uh, implying that you can see a sort of a, a glancing uh, you know, profile of, of God. But you can't see God in all of his, his, his expression because to see that would be, would be fatal. So how do, how do we, how do we, how do we uh, harmonize this with the fact that people do see God? Uh, or some sort of manifestation of him, and they're fine. So, so what do we do with this? This question sometimes comes up. That God is pure spirit, firstly, does not mean that he cannot manifest himself in a physical form. The error of docetism, that, that God cannot be seen in, in any way, and so Christ actually is just an apparition. It's not really God. He's just sort of a, something that appears to be. Uh, so... Uh, but but that's that's an error. God can manifest himself as a bush, as a dove, or as a person. In fact, he has chosen to manifest himself permanently in human form in the person of Jesus Christ, and those can be seen because they are physical in nature. John's statement that no one has ever seen God, he makes this statement in 1 John 4, and also Moses' restriction from seeing God so that he could only see his back rather than his face, must be harmonized with the fact that many have seen God and lived to tell of it. Isaiah and Samson's parents, for instance. So what what should we do with this? Well, first of all, John's comments must be understood in light of the comments in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So some have seen God. No, No one can ordinarily see God. However, those who have seen Christ have seen God. God cannot ordinarily be seen, but God, uh, the Son, being uniquely God himself, can be seen. The Exodus passage is a little bit more difficult. Why is it that Moses could only see the back of God and not his face? Clearly was understood by some to mean that one could see God, but to do so is fatal. This is clearly what Samson's parents thought. This is clearly what Isaiah thought, that they had seen God and so therefore must die. Probably what is meant here in Exodus is that a full manifestation of God's God's holy majesty would in fact kill the observer, either because the observer is finite or because he's sinful. Moses saw God, perhaps a pre-incarnate Christophany, we don't know for sure, but he did not see God in all of his glory. And that seems to be the concern. We can't see God, uh, you know, un- unveiled. Uh, to do so would be, uh, to do so would be fatal. Does that make sense? Does that follow? It's, it's a tough thing because it appears as though, uh, we've got these biblical figures who actually have a misunderstanding about that. Uh, Samson's parents clearly thought that they were going to die because they had seen God. Isaiah thinks this as well. Now, it may be because he is sinful. That's, he seems to point that out. 
Um, that that seems to be his concern, and so maybe his his thought is that I cannot stand uh, before the wrath of of a holy God, or else I'll be incinerated. And the response of the angel does sort of bear that out, right? You know, he brings the uh, the coal from the fire, touches it to his lips, and says, "You've been you've been cleaned, you've been cleansed," and so uh, making him then fit to look upon God in that sense. So. Uh, perhaps Isaiah is not as much of a problem, but Samson's parents clearly thought they were doomed because they saw God. Okay? Now let's do one more here. Life. Then we'll call tonight. The Lord God is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. The living God is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So that you, know, you almost hear the drum roll whenever you hear the living God. And I think that's intentional. The meaning of life, then, in saying that God is living, we're meaning more than the simple scientific definition of life, which could include animals and even plants. We need the term in a more theological sense as potential energy directed by its own intelligence. Okay. As opposed to, say, plants and animals who operate only according to instinct um, and the, uh, and the uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the different directions around them. As a living being, God is able to consciously do things external to himself. So that's what we mean by life. He can direct his activities through an intelligence. Just as was the case with God's spirituality, God's life can be distinguished from ours. John 1, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. In him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. And so the idea here is that we are alive too, but in a lesser sense. Now, some of this is going to have to be teased out here and then also when we talk about the anthropology. In what sense are we not like God in directing our activities by our own intelligence? Um, and the answer is that we don't have full sovereignty over what we do. I mean, we do make decisions. We do direct our activities by our own our intelligence, but sometimes we're for it. God isn't. God isn't thwarted. We also find this common phrase here in the Old Testament, as I live, says the Lord, which is an expression used really to make a divine oath. You know, I, I swear by myself, as I live, is sort of the idea here. Communicates that nothing is more certain than the life of God. This is kind of like when Abraham swears to Abraham that he's going to fulfill the terms of the covenant when he could swear by nothing greater he did what he swore by himself okay so he swore on his own life as i live says the lord is sort of a is sort of an oath formula that we find because there's nothing more certain than that uh, you know we swear on the bible because that's more certain than our own words uh god what does god swear by there's there's nothing that's more certain than him and so he swears by his own existence uh, which is the most certain thing uh, uh, in, in all of life that God is. So God, being a living God, can speak. Uh, the people heard the voice of a living God. He can create and preserve the universe. The living God made the heavens and the earth. This seems to be a, a critical issue here with creation. 
He can provide deliverance, Daniel in the lion's den. He's delivered by the living God. The living God performs miracles. This, in this one here, the parting of the Jordan. Uh, the living God redeems men. The living God is the savior of all men, and he can judge sin. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the reason that this uh, engenders then so much, sort of an ominous feel, when, when it says God is a living God, it says that God directs all things by his own intelligence. And so he can direct and determine anything. And so you better toe the line. Otherwise, the living God will direct his intelligence toward you or against you, as it were. And so, so this, this, this idea of God being the living God does sort of strike fear into the hearts of us because uh, we are at the mercy of this living being who has life in a sense that we don't. Okay, So that's two features of personality. Uh, that we share with God, but always in a finite sense. So, uh, being in the image of God, we are spirits, and we are living in the exact same sense as God is. Uh, but of course, He is in, in a much in a much more infinite way. So, does that makes sense. That follow. Next time, we'll come together and complete this list, and then probably get a start on uh, on the uh, on the attributes of God, which. Uh, we're going to call his perfections. Okay, so these are the capacities he has. Uh, his attributes then will be the perfections uh, that he exhibits.